Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. I am your host, Christopher Heap. We hear about the impending doom of a physician shortage. We hear that hundreds of thousands of people won't be able to get care because there simply won't be enough physicians to see all the sick people. Images of a post-apocalyptic world start to come to mind. What are we going to do? What are we supposed to do when there aren't enough doctors to care for everybody? I think it's really a knee-jerk reaction to think that people will be bleeding on the streets or chronic illness running rampant and diseases going unchecked with an obvious physician shortage looming. But what happens when we look a little closer and start to ask, why? Why do we believe there will be a shortage? Is there a shortage already? What is the cause of this, the root cause? I'll give you a hint. It's not for a lack of intelligent, competent people wanting to become doctors and care for us. On today's episode of Healthcare Americana, we welcome Dr. Marion Mass, a pediatrician, founder of the Practicing Physicians of America and writer. We get her thoughts about the physician shortage issue and whether or not proposed short-term fixes are really the answer. New physicians are graduating. I think the average is 250,000 in medical school debt alone. Then during the course of residency, you're accruing more interest on those loans and you can't pay them back. You're making like $50,000 average. It's not like you can have any time to do extra work or do a job. But the very nature of some of these new training programs for nurse practitioners, that you can do them while you're working a full-time job should be a warning bell for everyone. But a young student being who they are, they have their own debt to think about. So I think we will end up having fewer good qualified medical students. And it's sad because there will always be a need. So Dr. Mass, we say that medicine is a calling, not a career, but too few are choosing to dedicate their lives to a system many consider broken. We hear about this term physician shortage, but in your opinion, what does that really mean? It means that patients don't have the time that they need with a physician, with a well-trained physician. And a well-trained physician is really the standard of medical care. Now, I love the concept of not having time with a physician because, uh, you know, that's something that people rarely, rarely talk about. They usually mean that term in, in numbers, um, but I guess that opens the door to a lot of different questions about why they don't have time and what is a typical patient experience with a physician? Well, I mean, look at it historically. Um, I want to say if you go back about 20 years, you'll see that when a patient had a a sick visit, they had about 20 minutes and a well visit, they had about 30 minutes for a physician's time. I might get the number wrong on the well visit, but I know the sick visit, I think we're getting something like seven or eight minutes. Yeah. With our, yep. our patients are getting seven or eight minutes with us. That is not acceptable. As all Americans who are listening to this and all physicians know, do you ever hear about a doorknob complaint? No. <laughs> something that an attending like said to me once many, many moons ago. I'm, I'm old. I have this COVID gray hair now here. Um, but, you know, when you meet your patient and you're about to leave and you solve the problem that you thought that you were supposed to solve and you have your hand on the doorknob and they yeah. say, oh, by the way, you know, and there's a lot of that happens in, you know, between a physician and a patient that is an, oh, by the way, like they come in and they might have problem X, but they might actually be there for something else. 
you know, something bothering them with their mental health or something going on with their family. They just want to get your opinion. You know, we are still a trusted profession. If you look at the trust level America has for various professions, us and the nurses are sitting there right above 60%. You know, there's all kinds of other groups that have numbers, but uh, physicians are one of the highest. And so even if it's not a medical problem, physicians are trusted to kind of be the mother and father confessor to their patients. Mm-hmm. So many times, they need that. Yeah. yeah, many times playing a therapist or psychologist or talking through different types of issues. What should I do about mom? What should I do about dad? What should I do about my kids? They're driving me nuts. Seven minutes doesn't, to, to me, doesn't seem like a good enough time to run through a laundry list of any health problems, let alone anything that could be bothering a patient um, from any type sure. of physical, mental, emotional standpoint, right? Right. And, you know, now we actually have a number of physicians that are in shortage and we can talk about those reasons, but it's hard enough to get in to see the physician. So like if you wait a week or two weeks or whatever it is, by the time you get there, you're going to have another couple problems. You're going to have your doorknob complaints that are mounting because you're thinking, wow, if I'm in there, I'm going to need to get on top of X or Y or Z. And then you can't address those problems adequately because you as a physician are not given enough time. So you have to just rail off some quick simple fix at times or tell the patient this is going to have to wait till the next time like make a lengthier appointment but they get frustrated too it's it's not fair to any of us so our time has been cut down and our numbers have been cut down and who suffers most the patient oh yeah absolutely and you know you didn't mention that if you have limited time with a patient there might be something wrong with them and so what are you going to do as a physician you're going to you're going to prescribe a battery of drugs a battery of tests to power a, a battery of imaging just in case to try to fix something and then if that doesn't get to the problem, you're going to see them back in a couple of weeks, like you said, and we're going to try something else. So costs of time and money do tend to add up in that type of a model there. So obviously it's very tough, very expensive to become a doctor. So supply to me has always been low. So we're going to bring back supply and demand. I love that you brought it to, you know, the time aspect of being able to see a physician from a patient standpoint. But a lot of physicians might take some heat from being very highly paid. But again, supply and demand, you know, they go to school for a very long time. They had a lot of debt. Medical school is very, very expensive. So to me, they deserve a higher salary as a career choice. But uh, again, we always say that medicine is more of a calling than a career. But haven't we always, according to supply and demand, haven't we always had a shortage of physicians? Oh, always. I, I think actually, if you look at the raw numbers, like the numbers of physicians for patients is, is fairly high. But then are you counting the people that are actually practicing? And are you counting full time, half time, etc? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of physicians now that aim to work part time and then have supplementary income, because the job itself has become so agonizing because of all of the stuff that we're made to do the hoops that we're made to jump through, you know, etc. I think that for decades, we've been limited in the number of people that we can train as physicians. You know, Mm -hmm. the bottleneck is in the residency training. Mm -hmm. So um, long, I forget the year, you might know the number, but Congress limited the number of physicians that were able to go through residencies. And it's not hard for them to limit. It's Medicare and Medicaid that are paying for those residency positions for the most part. Medicare and Medicaid pay, I think it's an average of somewhere between like 112 dollars or $120,000 per resident per year to train a resident. Now, of course, what happens with that money is, is a different matter. I mean, you can like look up some articles about these things and see that 30% of that money goes to the physicians, the resident's salary, 
uh, goes to paying for the insurance, the malpractice insurance for that uh, resident physician. Uh, and then the rest of the money, the hospitals aren't really very accountable for where that money goes, nor do those hospitals that get the money, have they ever been transparent about how much money each resident is making for that hospital? Because right. if you're the one and the residents are physicians, you know, they're not fully trained, but they're the ones writing the prescriptions, slicing with a scalpel, you know, nothing happens in medical care without the slice of a scalpel or the stroke of a pen. Now it's a keyboard, a click of a keyboard, but um, that's making money for someone. And, you know, yeah. to have a transparent account would be helpful. And then we might find that we could train more residents if, if there was like a bleed of the 70% of money that <laughs> was not going towards our salary and our insurance. Yeah, usually on problems, you say follow the money. You say follow the money, right? And it's hard to follow the money in this case. So to answer your previous question, it was 1996 is the funding year um, that residencies are tied to. And, you know, fun little fact here, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, the number of residencies has increased 1% a year, while medical school enrollment has increased 52% since 2002. So again, Totally right. And identifying the bottleneck is, is again, federal involvement in the healthcare system. Um, when we've been capping for 24 years now to 1996 levels, that tends to mean to me that some of these problems on physician shortages is really self-inflicted. It's involvement from Medicare, you know, CMS and the government, and it has a negative influence on physicians, healthcare, and obviously patients by extension. Would you agree or disagree? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, geez, you know, <laughs> I've been saying for years, you know, to the government regarding healthcare, please, you've done enough. Just go away. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Let us handle our own house. You don't do a good job trying to pretend to be doctors or pretend that you know how medicine is working. And it certainly has borne out during COVID that we're in an awful pickle right now. I mean, American people are taking a look and you know, the CDC says this, and then they say that, and then they say the next thing. And, and then there's organizations that are writing articles in well-revered medical journals and then having to retract those things. And then it, it doesn't add to the trust of the system. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have the trust, then you don't get compliance and you don't get people believing in what you're doing. And it's really not helpful. And by and large, I can't say that most practicing physicians are part of that. Maybe if they were, and we cleaned out our own house, we might have some help. Um, but anyway, to answer your, your question, sure. you brought up more are going into medical school, but then less are able to train. Um, there's a new organization, and it's part of the Free to Care Coalition. You know, as you know, I'm the co-founder of Practicing Physicians of America, and PPA is part of the Free to Care Coalition, free, the number two, and care. And essentially, this is a group of people that came together under the ideas in a white paper that a group of us co-wrote. Um, including myself. And one of the main five arenas was the physician shortage. And recently, our newest coalition member of Free to Care is a group called the American Society of Physicians. And uh, Farina Khan is their representative. And this is a group of physicians that was not able to get the residency slot. But what they are starting to do is work as assistant physicians, not a not physician assistants, but assistant physicians. So they are all the way through their four years of college, their four years of medical school. They want to train. And so what they're doing is, is working with physicians that are willing to have them. And I think it's in the state of Missouri, they actually have a program so that they can get 
hooked up and teamed up where there is a, a physician that has need of help in their office, now that physician has someone that trained in either an osteopathic or allopathic medical school, just like the physician did, and they can take them on as an assistant physician. So it's, it's really great that you have someone who has the same training as you to come on board as your assistant. And then these wonderful individuals have the opportunity to stay in the game so that when a residency slot does open up for them, they're not rusty. Yeah, it, it kind of leads me, and I'm, I'm thrilled that that's happening. I think a lot of people will be excited too, but it leads me into thinking that we should stop calling it a physician shortage and start referring it to something else such as a, kind of like you said, a... Um, there's a training shortage. There's a bottleneck with, you know, how do they become medical students into residency to complete their training? I think we're going to have to get creative on that one and see, you know, see how we redefine this and what we start calling it rather than a physician shortage. Because there are people who are called to medicine who want to do it, who are capable of doing it, they're competent, yet the bottleneck is 24 years old. To me, that's a big time issue that isn't just physician shortage that implies that people don't want to do it or something along those lines. We don't have enough supply, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. And then, then you like, I mean, when you see a problem, like when I see a problem, I think, okay, at least in healthcare, I think of my short-term fix and my long-term fix, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a gardener. I go out into the garden. I'm like, oh, crud, there's the tomato hornworms and they're eating apart my tomato plants. Well, the short-term fix is for me to like pull the hornworms off as quickly as I can find them, but they're hard to find and I might be busy. And then, you know, the long-term fix is uh, importing parasitic wasps that are going to eat up the hornworms and, and, and be useful. <laughs> so, you know, like you're <laughs> long-term. So, you know, we have patients have a shortage of time with their physicians and they can't get in to see a physician. So we need to craft someone that is well-trained that they can see. And these assistant physicians seem to fit the bill. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, we need to open up physicians' time with their patients so that the time is there for those patients to spend the quality time to get to know their physician, to get to trust the physician, to get to ask all those doorknob complaints that they want to ask. So you mentioned short-term and long-term solutions. And one of these uh, short-term solutions we hear a lot from people who might not be as familiar with you know, the real problems, such as the lack of physician training programs. Um, a lot of these people advocate for physician assistants and nurse practitioners to have more independence and autonomy. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on the particular subject of using PAs and NPs to really replace MDs and DOs. Uh, well, I guess um, if you want to say replace, uh, no, I can't go there. Medicine itself, physicians define medicine and define who practices medicine. And first of all, let's discuss what physician assistants and nurse practitioners are. They have an entirely different training from physicians. Physician assistants, four-year program in, in a college setting, and then many will then work with a physician and then get trained by the physician. And as they're being trained, then that physician has them as an adjunct to the practice. And I think to be having a physician that's advising medical care by making sure that they're supervising adequately a physician assistant is great. Nurse practitioners, I, I think there's more of a history behind nurse practitioners, and more of a history in terms of the change of the education. So when I first started med school in 1990, we were seeing some NPs and some NPs come through training. 
at the time, nurse practitioners largely were people that had um, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years of bedside experience as nurses, and then went to a brick-and-mortar program and did, with a lot of clinical experience, became a nurse practitioner. The training has really changed. And, you know, look, it's a supply and demand thing. I think that, you know, because 23 states have granted, you know, legislators have just said, oh, you know, you have the right to write prescriptions and you have the right to see patients by yourself. And, you know, essentially legislators are saying, oh, poof, you're a physician or you can work as a physician, Mm -hmm. which I find ludicrous. We cannot have legislators defining what medicine is. I mean, I just got over telling you a couple of minutes ago, well, you know, when the legislature... Medicine is a problem for everyone. Yeah, how it contributes to the problem that we're in right now. So stroke of a pen, right? Try to fix it. But what has happened historically is now there are a lot of, there's a lot of good programs for nurse practitioners, but there are a lot of programs that are 100% acceptance rates that students who do a nursing degree, four-year college nursing degree, They're working as nurses and then doing an online program for a year and a half with very little clinical training. Mm -hmm. So that is a far cry from having 5, 10, 15, 20 years of experience and then doing a brick and mortar program. So the training has declined drastically and really the very seasoned, experienced nurse practitioners ought to be every bit as outraged because they're going to end up with newbies that have very little clinical experience and for them to step in and as you use the word replace it was ridiculous to say that anyone with completely different training can replace a physician because we're defined by our training so it has to be the house of medicine defining who practices medicine now mm-hmm. if you know, nurse practitioners or physicians assistants want to say i'm practicing nurse practitionery i'm practicing physician assistantry great go do it but define yourself and you know be proud of the education that you did don't try to take up someone else's role and, you know, put on a different coat that isn't your coat. I just see it as very simplistic. And truthfully, I guess, if the patients have full transparency in knowing, you know, so if there's a state where nurse practitioners are allowed to practice independently, we know there's 23 states plus DC, um, if that exists and patients want to go to a nurse practitioner, as long as it's completely transparent what the level of training is, then that's up to the patient, I suppose. But they ought to educate themselves and the patients ought to be able to understand what the level of training of the person caring for them is. Are you confident that the typical patient would have that education, though? I don't think it exists because I think the patients, and now you're getting back to the seven-minute problem, right? I mean, they have seven minutes with someone. In comes a person. They've got a white coat on, and they say, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Well, there's doctorate of nursing practitioners. So doctor doesn't mean the same thing as it used to be, you know, Mm -hmm. because people can become a doctorate of naturopath or a doctorate of nurse practitioner, as I mentioned, and then they pull on a white coat and they call themselves doctor and then you may not realize what their level of training is. And the problem gets to be when you see, and all of us have these stories, you know, we have patients that come in and they see us and they say, Oh, I saw this person in this clinic and this is what they told me to do. And you're like, "Uh uh-uh, that is not a good idea. Or you see, you know, baby X and baby X comes in looking really awful and needs to go to an ICU immediately because someone didn't do the right thing. Now, 
physicians, of course, we're not 100% perfect. None of us are. So I'm not going to say that I've lived my medical life without a mistake. But I guess as a patient, you ask yourself, is someone who did 20,000 hours worth of clinical training, which is the minimum that you need to do to become a physician, Mm -hmm. is that someone that will be more or less likely to make an error in judgment than someone who has a minimum of 500 clinical hours of training, you know? Yeah, I think pretty big, I pretty big discrepancy. Yeah, yeah, pretty big discrepancy there. You know, it, it leads me to something that, that, like you said, it's not just so simple that, okay, now PAs and PEs equal MDs and DOs. Is there something else motivating these efforts? You know, we always want to look a, a layer deep, two, a, two layers deep. What else could be happening besides people saying, oh, we need more time with healthcare providers, as they call them now, which I hate the term provider, but that seems to be uh, the word du jour, uh, you know, these days. But anything else kind of under the, under the surface? Yeah. I always say follow the money and who's looking to, you know, make money off of the healthcare system. And it's, it's the corporates. So if you look across America, I think the two corporate entities that are most interested in making use of a cheap labor force or a cheaper labor force or a more easily accessible labor force uh, mm-hmm. would be the pharmacy chains and big hospital networks. Even retail getting involved too. So, you know, the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons, you name it. Yes. Yes. So I'll use as an example, uh, CVS. So CVS um, purchased Aetna, you know, they had 62 billion in cash lying around and, you know, CVS, um, they don't own just the brick and mortar CVS stores that are everywhere with a little heart on them, the little robotic looking heart. The care <laughs> like mark, yeah. Robotic heart. Yes, yes. So uh, CVS actually makes a lot of money from the entity you just said, Caremark. Caremark is a pharmacy benefit manager. And uh, part of what they're doing with that money is purchasing Aetna for $62 billion. People probably think, oh, CVS makes all their money in the retail stores, but a full 60% of their revenues come from their PBM care mark. So just for doing the administrative work that they do on prescriptions by making up the formularies and collecting what they call and they're really kickbacks, that's where they're getting a revenue stream. And so then they're able to open up more brick and mortars. And when they purchased Aetna, they announced during the purchase that the whole reason that we're doing this is so we can expand and we can bring great primary care to America by opening up these minute clinics and making more of them, but there's no doctors involved. I mean, how can you be bringing great healthcare to America when the very standard of care that has defined medicine for decades, you're not even involving them? That's absolutely outrageous. Mm-hmm. And so these are a bunch of I like the term suits versus scrubs. Truthfully, you know, I, I remember it was uh, Meg Friedman who used to be one of the executive directors of Free Market Medical Association that used the suits versus scrubs little phrase with me and it's stuck. It's business suits that are making these decisions and deciding mm-hmm. here's where we're going to put things. Uh, we're going to open up these minute clinics and nurse practitioners are going to be here to take care of you, America. So they've done it by innovating and creating something that is non-physician completely and then defining it, like, you know, just going out and self-proclaiming, this is going to be great primary care. And then, of course, by owning the insurance company and, you know, owning the pharmacy benefit manager and owning the brick and mortar store and the pharmacy that's inside of it, imagine all the conflicts of interest there. So it's yeah. really not very trustworthy. 
So that's one corporate that's interested in seeing this come to fruition. And then the other big, you know, corporate model is, you know, the hospitals. And if you start researching and looking up, you can see evidence. Uh, I think there was a case in the Chicago area last summer where a bunch of ER physicians were fired and replaced with nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, there's been whole pediatric programs or have been closed down in the Dallas area. Uh, there was a, a set of pediatric clinics, physicians laid off, in come the nurse practitioners. So you can see the big hospital systems are doing that here and there. And the nurse practitioners have decent salaries compared to the level of training that they have, but I'm kind of thinking it's probably going to be bait and switch for them. You know, sure. they will become the new pawns of the corporate world. Now, we as physicians can just sit back and complain about that, or if we find that we're out of a job, we certainly have the training to be able to innovate and open up something that's free and independent as long as Washington, D.C. doesn't get their mucky fingers in the mix and make that impossible. Sure, <laughs> so unintended consequences, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but you know, it behooves us to uh, define ourselves by our training, to be the best physicians we can for our patients, and then to look to where we can innovate, bringing a better model to patients with better access, more time, more personalized care. Because really, healthcare is personal. I mean, you can't just click a box. You can't just follow a cookbook and expect that you're going to give good medical care. You're not. Right. It comes down to experience, like you said. It's, it, it's like some of these bigger entities are treating people like widgets on the assembly line. And, you know, cheaper, uh, lower costs that don't really affect the top line, that's, that's good business sense. But again, people are not widgets. And this isn't some kind of factory where the human body is just replicable and all conditions are, and diseases are the same here. So let me, let me kind of ask you this and, and, you know, let's imagine that I am a student who is looking at going to medical school because I felt called to medicine to care for people. And I'm looking at this and I'm in a state where NPs can practice independently. Why would I decide to go to medical school and spend nearly a decade of my life spending all kinds of money going into debt to become a physician when I can do the exact same things professionally as a nurse practitioner for a fraction of the time and money? Why would yeah, somebody yeah. make the decision for medical uh, school? They won't. They won't. And so then now, um, you know, we, we talked about the bottleneck that was there. We talked about already the existing physician shortage. And now with a path to go forward at a time when, when education is outrageously expensive. I know from you and I speaking, you know, you're about to have your first child. Well, our first yep. child is about to start his senior year of college. And let me tell you, whoo, hefty on the pocketbook there. Yeah. So if I were a young student and I were thinking about a career in medicine and we've had multiple people approach us and it's, it's really a hard conversation. It tears at my heart. I tell people I've loved being a physician. I, I still love being a physician. And that if you want to have the penultimate, the best education to be able to take care of your patients, and you want to be the standard of care, then you go to medical school. And I do think it's worth it. Although, is it worth the cost? I mean, new physicians are graduating. I think the average is 250000 in medical school debt alone. You know, there's probably another 100000 in the undergrad under there. So they're already starting residency with a mortgage, you know, a big one too, right? One, yeah. And then during the course of residency, you're accruing more interest on those loans and you can't pay them back. You're making like $50,000 average. 
So paying back while most residencies are in big cities. And so you're in a big city where the rent is high and it's not like you can have any time to do extra work or do a job. The very nature of some of these new training programs for nurse practitioners that you can do them while you're working a full-time job should be a warning bell for everyone. But, you know, a young student being who they are, they have their own debt to think about. So a lot of them will choose that path. And I think we will end up having fewer good qualified medical students. And it's sad because there will always be a need. Mm -hmm. I think we, we do have, once again, short-term, long-term solutions. The short-term encouraging people that there will be that need. Um, the long-term building innovative models such that the physicians are able to practice the way they were trained, you know, cutting out the glut, all the hoops sure. that we have to jump through that are not helping the patient. And then um, I think another long-term solution is going to have to be how can we tackle the issue of medical student debt because mm -hmm. it's huge. And just paying it off isn't going to help because if you just pay it, it's just the same thing you're doing when you medical insurance. If everything gets covered, you're covering up the reason that the costs are so high. So oh, there's got to be a reason, yeah, that when I was at Duke Med in 1990, our tuition was 13000 a year. And that now <laughs> it's pushing 70. I mean, where not, is all of that money going? <laughs> not quite tracking with uh, the consumer pricing index, I would say there. Last question for you. And, you know, it seems like we've been a lot of, focusing a lot of time on the primary care uh, side of medicine, side of healthcare, and, you know, comparing MPs, PAs, and, and the uh, MBs and DOs that go into primary care. You know, what's your experience been with the specialists and surgeons uh, who are those MDs who have been going to medical school? It would seem to me that they have a dog in the fight. They, they should be offering an opinion on this. Is that your experience that, that they are getting involved or is the healthcare community very splintered when it comes to something like this? I'm glad you, you asked. I think the healthcare community has been splintered for a long time. And the first obvious split is the, the specialist versus generalist. And it's too bad. I mean, I, I see right through it. I'm a generalist married to a specialist. So I think that in terms of the NPPA situation, I think for specialists, NPs and PAs as an adjunct to care are really useful. You know, I've talked to surgical subspecialists that tell me I couldn't get through my day without my physician assistant, but then they're supervised carefully in that role. I think that the primary care are seeing more of the influx of my jobs are being taken. Mm -hmm. I still have to hear of a surgeon who was fired and replaced with a, a non-physician provider. <laughs> a robot um, would be the most likely scenario. Coming. Yeah, no, it might be coming. That's when you'll really hear them speak up and squawk, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I will say that it, one of the exceptions, um, derm and plastics, you know, because people do pay cash sometimes for those fields and because they're both in need, especially derm. Uh, I've heard of a dermatologist that train a PA or train an NP, and then the NP goes and sets up a shingle in a, in a state where um, independent practice is possible, mm -hmm. which once again, the public really needs to know who's treating them you know, sure. before they go in. So I think there is a divide. I think most of the specialists don't realize it's going on with some exceptions. And I do think that if, if we listen to the specialists and they listen to primary care doctors, like if we cross-pollinated and listen to each other's problems, we might be better off as a profession. Well said, well said. Dr. Marion Mass, pediatrician, founder and vice president of the Practicing Physicians of America, writer, organizer, 
and a champion of excellent patient care. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, You've given us a lot of food for thought here and hopefully we can continue to make it a positive impact. Oh, I would love that. Well, thanks again for joining us on Healthcare Americana. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.